This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I love you. I've loved you since the first moment I saw you. I love you too. It scares me. That was Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift in the Oscar-winning tragedy, A Place in the Sun. By the time those two young stars shared a screen together, Elizabeth Taylor was already one of the most famous actresses in Hollywood. The spotlight of fame. Of not just wanting to be famous, but actually becoming famous. What happens when all your dreams do come true? Well, I can tell you, life changes. Mine did, in ways I could not control. I'm not saying this for sympathy. The glamour, the attention, the ability to never worry about money ever again. Fame can have those benefits and still be overwhelming. The people around you change. You can't control that. We can't ever control the behavior of others. But most of us can control ourselves and our own lives until fame hits. Whether you're an actress, athlete, or a pop star, fame is a force that wipes away control. It's not different for today's influencers, whether or not they were celebrities first. It was no different for Elizabeth Taylor. Like Elizabeth, I wanted to take control, to never ask for permission, to not lose myself in the sea of adoration, to follow my passions, but also be who I am without reservation or apology without worrying about what people might think. Control. How do you take it back when the dream you worked so hard for is what took it away? Do you quit? Or can you stop letting everyone else tell you what you should be? Own your own power? Create your own moments? And write your own narrative? That last part sounds like a choice you can make, right? Well, not if someone or something owns you with a contract. That's the business part of fame. Someone else can own your future. As a child star, a young Elizabeth Taylor realized that she was property of MGM Studios. To take control of her life, she would either have to quit acting or build her fame to such a degree that she had more power than the studio. And then break that contract. For Elizabeth, the secret ingredient was the first thing she became famous for, her beauty. And now, the most beautiful child an audience had ever seen on screen was growing up and quick. A Place in the Sun introduced the world to an adult Elizabeth Taylor. With its love triangle storyline that tackled lust out of wedlock pregnancy and murder, the film put Elizabeth's years of churning out girlhood dramas for MGM securely behind her. But at this point, the studio still had ironclad control. I'm Katy Perry, and this is Elizabeth I. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. This is Chapter 2, Control. Nobody loved the studio. You couldn't say, I, well, yes, I work at MGM. I, you know, I'm with, I have a contract with MGM and all that. But you wouldn't say, oh, I just love being at MGM. It's so wonderful. You, you wouldn't get that kind of feeling. And definitely not at Warner Brothers or Paramount or anything. When we left Elizabeth in our first episode, her star was rocketing. After the success of National Velvet, she proved her ability, as a child, to carry a hit movie. 
And from the money she made for the studio, she proved her worth. In Hollywood's biggest stable of actors, Elizabeth was one of MGM's most valuable stars. And she had just stood her ground against MGM's fearsome mogul, Louis B. Mayer. The confrontation was a lesson in power versus control. At age 15, Elizabeth realized what she meant to men like L.B. Mayer. She may have had the power to confront his abuse and survive without being punished or fired, but not because she had earned or deserved his respect. She wasn't fired because she was a commodity, nothing more. Elizabeth Taylor was MGM's property, an asset that L.B. would never relinquish as long as she was making him money. And it didn't necessarily have to be in one of his own studio's films. Elizabeth's archivist, Mitch Erzinger, and her trusty and dear friend, Tim Mendelson, explain. As an employee of MGM, she would do films for MGM, but then she would also be um, loaned out to other studios, like Columbia Pictures or Warner Brothers, to do a film. And these agreements weren't between Elizabeth Taylor and you know, Warner Brothers, for example, they were between Warner Brothers and MGM, who had a loan-out agreement to loan out the services of the artist, Elizabeth Taylor, to this other company. And then Warner Brothers would pay MGM, and MGM would then pay you know, Elizabeth Taylor her salary. Very transactional. Um, so it, it really was uh, as if the employees were, were treated as commodities, as, as, as property. The actors, the talent was chattel back then. They didn't have rights. The studio took over their lives. They told them what they can and can't do. It was all fake. And they told them who they could be friends with. They made gay men get married to women. If you turn down a script, they put you on suspension. If you became pregnant, they put you on suspension. And that didn't set well with me at all. In the golden age of cinema, a star's personal life was contractually under the control of the studio. Elizabeth wasn't being dramatic when she called these years her time of penal servitude. LB owned her. He could carve her life however he saw fit. And his toolbox of control had one extremely sharp blade, the press. So in old Hollywood, there were the, the original kind of gossip columnists who were hired by the studios because the studios controlled all the information on the actors during that time. Going through a lot of the press at that time, so the 1940s, early 1950s, we have, I don't know how many hundreds of Mag movie magazines that were the, of the time, the kind of film industry gossip magazines like Photoplay, Movie Star Magazine, all of these where Elizabeth was featured, a regular feature on the cover and even inside um, where there would be rarely an interview but usually some feature on what kind of film she was working on, maybe what she was wearing, which she went to a premiere with Montgomery Clift or Marshall Thompson or what, or what have you. Um, and I think it's just the nature of the press at the time where it, it, it just had this quality of, of almost seeing her in the same way as the studio did as this commodity especially when she became a little bit older, sort of fetishized in the way that, in her, for her beauty, um, for her maturity, because she was mature beyond her years. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, at 16, she did look older. She even, I think, said it herself about how she, she really thought that she was an adult and grown up, but then realized later how you know, she, she really wasn't at that time. Of all of LB's blades in the press toolbox, his favorite axe was former actress and popular gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Everyone read Hedda's column. She drove the narratives on some of the biggest scandals of her time. If you know anything about Joe McCarthy and his Red Scare campaign against Hollywood, you recognize her name as one of his staunchest advocates. 
Hedda played her part in Elizabeth's legacy as well. Beginning with a remarkable headline that hit the press, just as LB realized what kind of force of nature could chastise him to his face and make the unthinkable demand that he apologize to her mother. The power and beauty of Elizabeth Taylor rocked him backwards, and he wasn't the only one. Elizabeth's early maturity was having an effect on her screen presence, especially for an audience of men. So, Hedda cemented Elizabeth's adulthood to the world with the declaration in print that at the tender age of 15, Elizabeth Taylor was the most beautiful woman in the world. The next chore for MGM was finding a star vehicle for Elizabeth that would graduate her from girl to womanhood. And in those times, what could capture that transition more perfectly than becoming a bride? She was 18 years old, and she got married to Conrad Nicky Hilton Jr., who was the heir to the, the Hilton Hotel chain fortune. It was all manufactured by the studio. I mean, her whole first marriage was a big publicity stunt, essentially. She had just come off of Father of the Bride, engaged to be married. Helen Rose did the wardrobe for MGM, and she did this beautiful uh, costume for the film, and then she also made Elizabeth's wedding dress for her own wedding. We have hundreds of prints, and there are hundreds more out there of the wedding itself. People crowded out onto the streets. It it was a big movie tie-in for publicity. They're young, they're successful, they're, they're, they're handsome. It was a huge press event again, and then they, they immediately went away on a five-month-long honeymoon on the Queen Mary, across the Atlantic to France. Nick Hilton wasn't drinking at the time that they were engaged and got married, but he started to on that honeymoon, and the marriage ended for only nine months after Elizabeth suffered to physical and emotional abuse, even suffering a miscarriage. And these were things that she did not talk about until much later. She was absolutely a virgin when she got married to Nick Hilton at 18, which was also an arranged marriage, essentially. And then he beat the shit out of her. She did not even tell her her family about this, even the reasons for the divorce. And so everybody was even, why are you doing this? This, this, is, this was terrible for you know, your career, publicity. And so I always you know, wondered why she didn't tell anyone about it at the time or wasn't upfront about those, those reasons. But I think it's because she would also talk about how she just did not like to air dirty laundry in public um, or drag people through the mud. Even if they had wronged her, she still had a level of respect for people who just treated her so poorly to not publicly try to humiliate or shame them because she knew that there was nothing necessarily good, I think, to come out of that. And she wasn't looking to gain anything from that. Not every executive at the studio felt the same way about teenage Elizabeth Taylor's sex appeal, married or not. Dory Sherry, LB's top film production executive, was more protective of his young starlet. His daughter Jill, one of Elizabeth's childhood friends, remembers the time. My dad was a little stuffy about things, and he got mad at the wardrobe department at one point. There was a picture of Elizabeth Taylor and Irene Dunn, and they were both wearing very busty dresses. My dad did not like that poster, and it was removed. And he said, that's too much. You don't do that. She's too young, and this shouldn't be happening. Now 18, Elizabeth no longer required the guidance or control of her mother, Sarah. But LB, Dory, directors, the press, so many hands were still influencing her career. By the time she'd been married off to Nikki Hilton, it was clear to them all that the most beautiful woman in the world would soon be the biggest star on the planet. But something else, something of her own, was brewing within Elizabeth. Maybe the pain of being married off to a man who turned cruel activated it. Maybe it was her miscarriage, the loss of a child, and with it, her own innocence. Maybe facing all of that alone, and then knowing it was either her life or a very public divorce. 
maybe. As the saying goes, with great suffering comes great art. Elizabeth was becoming an artist. Elizabeth was certainly a star at the age of 12 with National Velvet. It's one of her most amazing, one of her best films. Uh, but, you know, she had a lot of years at MGM making, as she would say, crap movies. Until Place in the Sun. The role in A Place in the Sun was a fully realized woman in love. This was no movie for children or even for families. Although she was only 17, she was served up to an audience of adults women and men, as an object of desire. Few things in the human condition are more powerful than desire. She'd realize her own power as a commodity, and she learned that although she may have had value to the men who owned her, she had no influence over them or her career as long as she was their commodity. She had no agency without control. Taking ownership over her own womanhood, her sexuality, was one way to start gaining control. And whether she realized it or not, A Place in the Sun was the first step towards freedom. The film not only brought Elizabeth her first serious role as a woman, it brought a serious actor into her orbit, Montgomery Clift. I learned so much from him. I watched every move he made. And sometimes I'd say to him, Monty, you're eating yourself up alive. It's acting. That's why it's called acting. You don't have to sweat, real sweat. You don't have to shake, real shakes, and go on shaking 10 minutes or 12, 15 minutes after the scene is over. Because your body doesn't know the difference. And you're going to make yourself sick. Elizabeth recalls her early years as a child actress as just playing herself. She was a natural. She had a career, but she hadn't yet challenged herself the way Montgomery Clift did. What Elizabeth witnessed with Monty is craftsmanship of their art. And once she saw the work, she dove in full force. I love the idea. It was every child's dream. And to act with dogs and horses and play make-believe. Until I got older and did A Place in the Sun with Monty. And I was a god. This genius young actor. And for the first time, I took acting seriously and realized it wasn't a game. It was a craft. Friends of both Elizabeth and Monty, who understood the industry, knew what they were witnessing. When's an artist or when somebody wants to be a movie star? There's a whole big difference. And I think that with Elizabeth, she kind of understood from the very beginning what this was. That this was my beautiful painting that I've made. This was, this is mine. This is me. They couldn't do this without me. Gravitas. Elizabeth was carving out a way to control her career through gravitas. She could get the great roles now. She was taken seriously, not only as a bankable star, but as an artist who could deliver on the best scripts for the greatest directors. She was earning her voice, and, in time, she would have plenty to say. Before our current moment of influencer culture, throughout history, the great influencers were all artists. It's the artist who is the seer. They bear witness to the moment and find an avenue to express it in a way that reaches across social barriers to inform, illuminate, and create change. Sometimes that moment is one of hope and beauty, but all too often it's the suffering of others. And with Montgomery Cliff, Elizabeth was about to crash into the ladder. She treated like Montgomery Cliff like he was her baby brother. You know, he was her brother. It wasn't a romantic thing at all. It was, they just, they just loved each other because they were both tender and special, and they knew they were special. They really did. <laughs>
They knew they were special and deserved particular and kind of regal treatment. You know, don't yell at me. Don't mess around with me. Don't do this sort of thing. And Monty knew he was, he was marvelous and he was an artist and she was an artist. And she knew how to be beautiful and sexy without making a thing of it. She protected Monty because he seemed frail to her. And he, and he was, because he was, he was troubled. And my father loved him. But he, he did write a note in his book that he was upset because he knew he was hooked on alcohol and drugs. Dad couldn't figure out how to fix it and stop it, that it was going to be trouble. The accident had happened because it was, I remember it was around three in the morning or something. And I heard a car coming up the driveway and I ran downstairs to see what it would be. And Montgomery Cliff was covered with blood. He'd had an accident. The car was wrecked. There were people around him. There was a cop. He'd had this accident. The way it was described in Hollywood was that he'd, he'd done it himself. He'd slammed his car into a tree. My dad refused to believe that. Elizabeth then took on this new role. She took care of him. She was, she was there for him during that time. And I came down, I was standing behind my dad. And he said, Jill, you go right back to bed and Monty's gonna be okay, I'm gonna take care of it. Because I liked him too, because he was, he was sweet. And I remembered that real love wasn't about just kissing and hugging, but wanting to take care of and heal somebody. Loving Montgomery Clift may have been Elizabeth's first formative experience with a friend in great pain, but it would not be the last. Regardless of the control the studio had, an adult Elizabeth remained capable of prioritizing her own health and happiness. Publicity, and even the career, meant nothing to her compared to that. A year after her divorce from Hilton, Elizabeth fell in love and married Michael Wilding, an English stage and film actor, 20 years her senior. You know, if you fell in love and were close to someone, it was automatic that you got married. I was brought up, that was, uh, those were my morals, and it just, no matter how old I got, it was still like, you know, I had to um, legalize it. Despite her traditional values and the circumstances of her first divorce, the quick second marriage was blood in the water for the gossip mongers, like Hedda Hopper. Headlines, gossip rags, the clickbait of Elizabeth's era. It never hit the mark of the truth, especially when it came to Elizabeth and love. There was no recklessness, no raucous lifestyle. Elizabeth was just traditional, she believed in marriage, and when she was in love, she committed. It's that simple. In her day, that wasn't the story, the frame, that the studio thought would sell, and their gossip journalists were on the payroll to sell a product. With the story about Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, they were there to put a positive spin on the actors, and okay, this was the 40s, but people were, ha I mean, people were just as raucous and wild as they are today with sex and alcohol and drugs. It's not like that stuff didn't exist back then. They were a bunch of actors, beautiful people, and they had wild parties and they did all the stuff that we do hear about today. But the studio covered all of that up and protected them. But there was a really high price that they had to pay because the studio controlled everything they did and everything they were and how the public perceived them. So they couldn't be their true, authentic selves. But Elizabeth was her true, authentic self and didn't get fired for it. She was in a male-dominated studio system. And she held her own. And when she married Michael Wilding, so she's like 20, 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. All cameras at London Airport are focused on two people very much in love. But no Hollywood premiere could ever compete with this, as thousands of fans fought for just a glimpse of these glamorous stars on their wedding day. And for the first two years, she let him make all the decisions. But she fought for some roles and got them. And once she realized that she had power over the film she made, she started calling the shots. And essentially, that's why their marriage broke up. Because for the first couple years, it was all him. And then it was all her. He hated it. He was miserable when she started to become independent. And that's really when she did start to become the most independent. It was a second marriage that could never work. But it gave Elizabeth the one role that mattered above all others. She became a mother. Hollywood, where a new personality makes his film debut, Michael Howard Wilding, the two-month-old son of film stars Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Wilding. As you'd expect, the camera holds no terrors for baby Michael. He knows he's playing the leading role. And this is one time when Elizabeth doesn't want to be billed. She's just happy to be young Michael's mum. Elizabeth and Michael had two boys, Michael Jr. and Christopher. Her love of motherhood naturally eclipsed that of her art. Yet, even in this sacred part of her life, LB had control. The world that she had to navigate in the studio system seemed to be very difficult, especially being a woman. We have, for example, some letters, or I guess you would say notices from the company, from MGM, notifying her of her reduced compensation period uh, due to her pregnancy uh, with her first child. And so at that time, there were, of course, no protections for, for women and for maternity leave or things like that. And so because she was a salaried employee and she couldn't work, they reduced her compensation. If she didn't report back at the time specified by the company, then they would extend that period. So we have letters or notices along those lines that are informing her of this reduced compensation period. February 16, 1953. Addressed to Mrs. Michael Wilding, professionally known as Elizabeth Taylor. The letter was from MGM Pictures and said, in part, By reason of the birth of your child on January 6, 1953, the reduced compensation period provided for in paragraph 29. In this connection, it is expressly understood that the extension of said first reduced compensation period, as herein provided, is purely voluntary on our part. After years of surviving and thriving in the patriarchy of the studio system, Elizabeth thought marriage would be her way out. She longed to be a wife and mother and just disengage even though it meant giving up her art. That was the most important thing to her. Of course, being a mother, she was very, very proud of being a mother and her children and all of that. But, you know, this is somebody who'd been playing roles since she was a little girl, so I think it makes sense to call it a role. She wanted to be with a man. At the end of the day, she's a human being like you and I are. And yet, she's got this huge responsibility of being this arguably fam most famous woman in the world. And no one can do that with her. So sharing her life with somebody and having it be a combined experience with somebody else was the closest thing she was ever going to have to company in that area. And I think that was really important to her and she wasn't her ego wasn't so big. I mean, she really wanted to um, have her life be his life. She was traditional in that way. Of course, it never worked out because she was Elizabeth Taylor. 
Despite the disappointment of her marriage to Wilding, Elizabeth had her chance at happiness with her children. Her passion and love of family would ultimately lead to her freedom. Her granddaughter, Naomi Wilding, gives us a window into this private part of Elizabeth's world. For most of my childhood, um, my grandmother, even though she married often, she didn't have um, sort of a male partner that was responsible for the family in the way that she was. She was the matriarch. She, she led our family. She was extremely successful at everything that she did. And, and she raised us in that same way, that, that way which was of compassion and love, but was very, very firm. And, I, and that, was, that was our strong influence. There was never any question about who was in charge. She was competent and confident, capable. And I, but at the same time, I think if you had a conversation with her, like all of us, she would say, well, I don't know what I'm doing, or I feel insecure about this, that, or the other. But that didn't change her ability to, to lead by example, to raise her family in the best possible way. Yeah, but she was more than a matriarch. She had done a lot, and she had sacrificed a lot of her own freedom. I think she really wanted to take care of us. Yeah. She was a real person, too, what's and all. She was a, and she was also a, a real parent and a real grandmother. And you know, for all, the, for all the sweet stuff, she could also be really strict. That's the unremarkable stuff that you don't necessarily remember so much or you don't talk about because it's just normal. If she heard you being rude to somebody, if you were being a bratty kid, you might speak, speak to somebody rudely. That was not tolerated. Things like that. She, and she'll snap at you and tell you off. Took on the responsibility of matriarch. It was important to her. She wasn't ambivalent to that role. And she wasn't just like, because she was the, the grandmother, she knew she was the matriarch. This was a role she took on happily the point where she was the one that brought us all together for holidays and things. It was part of her job, make sure we get all the family together and keep it, keep it going. She was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Really fun. Along with motherhood, the second jewel that Elizabeth's marriage to Wilding brought into her life was the love of her life. Theatrical impresario and charismatic producer, Mike Todd, Mr passion. With his creative productions, Mike was a roller coaster of wild success and catastrophic failure. The ultimate high roller, he fearlessly leapt from epic highs to bottomless lows and back again. And he carried his high-risk energy off the stage, once winning and then losing an entire racetrack in a game of cards. Mike Todd was a hardcore gambler, literally, in an unforgiving town. The man could and did get any and everything he wanted, all with a twinkle in his eye. He was simply irresistible. I think 80 Days received something like 70 or 80 awards from all over the world. But my heart was really in my throat the night of the Oscars. When it was time for the Best Picture Award and they called me up, without thinking, I ran to the platform and I grabbed it. I mean, I grabbed it. I won the two biggest prizes you can get, the Academy Award and Elizabeth Taylor. As told by his best friend, actor Eddie Fisher, Mike fell in love with Elizabeth at first sight. They met at a friend's dinner party while Elizabeth was still married to Wilding. Mike Todd invited the Wildings over to his place for a future dinner, just to get another look at her. The moment he heard that Elizabeth and Wilding had separated, he went for her like a heat-seeking missile. He found her sitting alone in a VP's office at MGM, took her by the elbow, and without saying a word, swept her away to a private room where he could plead his case. I see you've decided to shed that guy. Don't start looking around for someone to latch on to. You are going to marry only one guy. See? And his name is me. So... Mike Todd finds Elizabeth at MGM and he pulls her into an office and basically spent an hour 
telling her, convincing her, letting her know that they were going to be married. They were going to, he was in love with her clearly. And you know, she had met him before and he was just this huge personality and this truly wonderful man who absolutely thought, believed and knew he was the luckiest man on earth to have a chance to be with Elizabeth Taylor. And she fell in love with him. He taught her how to love. He taught her how to love, but he taught her how to be loved. That's what Elizabeth really focused on with him. He taught her how to be loved because his love for her was so great. He considered her a queen, and in many ways she was. He treated her like a queen. He had her on a pedestal, and he took care of her. He spoiled the kids, he spoiled Elizabeth, but he knew that Elizabeth couldn't be spoiled because she was too pure of heart. But he lavished everything on her. I was reading interviews with some people that worked for them at the time, and they talk about Mike's love for Elizabeth. And they said, you know, he really was so enamored with her. And the, they, they questioned whether Mike would have even been able to make Around the World in 80 Days if Elizabeth had been around, because so much of his attention was focused on her. But Mike was a brilliant man. He was a showman. He was a con man, but he was a good, solid man. And Elizabeth needed that because she was a good, solid woman. And she needed her emotional, her emotional equal, her intellectual equal, and somebody where they could really have a, have a real life together. And when you're Elizabeth Taylor, that isn't the easiest thing because there's a whole bunch of baggage that comes along with that. The fame and with the, uh, the world and the focus on her. But Mike had the guts and the wherewithal. And most importantly, he, he worshipped her. And, and through all of that, she, she learned how to be loved. With Mike, Elizabeth experienced the elusive thing that we all want, that we all long for, because it's the key ingredient to true love. The world's most photographed and media-covered actress finally felt seen. Mike saw her soul. He knew what made her tick and what made her unique. What actually made her the most beautiful woman in the world? Her indomitable spirit, her generosity, her brilliance, and her thirst for joy. Mike Todd got Elizabeth Taylor. Ruth Peltison, Elizabeth's editor for her autobiographical book, My Love Affair with Jewelry, which was, of course, a fabulous art book, weighs in. Well, I mean, Elizabeth's stories about the jewelry were always great. Um, one thing I do recall thinking quite a lot at the time, because people love to play the game, who did Elizabeth, which husband did Elizabeth love most? And, and uh, any of us who have gotten past our 30s know that love changes. We might love at 25, love is different than when you're 45, um, that sort of thing. But I remember so often thinking that when Elizabeth would speak about pieces from, say, Mike Todd and things going on in their lives or with Burton, my takeaway was her voice changed talking about Mike Todd. I thought he's her guy. He's her person. Elizabeth and Mike were married in Acapulco, Mexico in early 1957. It was a third marriage for them both. Well, Mrs. Todd uh, is my favorite person in the whole world. There's no secret about it. There's no better way in the world of spending it than trying to spoil Elizabeth. You can't, but that be... Uh, somebody once said, is Elizabeth spoiled? And I said, I know nothing more pleasant than trying to spoil her. And I won't be able to, I don't think. The baby would be a girl named Liza, just as Mike had wished. It was a time of pure happiness for Elizabeth. In the months just before Liza's birth, Edward Murrow sat down with the happy couple for his popular show, Person to Person. As you listen, imagine the visible grins and literal beaming on their faces. This is from an era where man and wife 
often stood in rigid roles. But for these two, marriage was a playful dance between two electric minds. This is passion. Liz, are you ready? Of course! That's my girl, that's the new Liz, she's ready. First we came from Mexico, then we went to California, then we came to New York, then we went back to California, then we came to Chicago, then we went back to California, then we have a house in Palm Springs. Then we left Chicago last night at 9 o'clock this morning. Because a Saturday was their anniversary, every Saturday, Mike bought Elizabeth a gift. To see Elizabeth when you give her something that she really loves is an unbelievable feeling. She is such a, a generous gift receiver. And you, I mean, giving her something that she loved was better than than, you know, getting something yourself. And I know they always say, okay, it's better to give than to receive. But with Elizabeth, she would give you, if it was genuine, I mean, she always put on a, a show, but you could tell when it was real and when it was like, okay. But, I mean, she was, she was like, not shy about it. You would never hear Elizabeth say, oh, you shouldn't have. I mean, that is one thing that I believe never came out of Elizabeth's mouth. She was like, thank you. I mean, I love this. You're wonderful. You know, I mean, she wouldn't and throw her arms around you. And it was a big show. Because Mike got Elizabeth, he got her jewelry. And because he was the ultimate showman, he got her movie star jewels, the kind of gemstones that come with stories from the ages, love, tragedy, empires. It was the beginning of an epic collection, and she wore it all, as only she could. A 29 and a half carat diamond engagement ring, Elizabeth called my ice skating rink an antique diamond tiara, Girondeau diamond earrings, and a ruby and diamond Cartier suite that made her scream. With her new baby girl, Liza, her two boys, and a man who loved her like no other, Elizabeth Taylor, who had been working in the spotlight since childhood, was finally living her best life. It was time to say goodbye to MGM, and her man made it happen. Elizabeth really, with Mike Todd, wanted to be done making movies. So Mike got her out of her contract. She didn't, she was going to make Cat on Hutch and Roof. She was going to make a film with him, maybe another later on. So Elizabeth was really like, she was ready to be married to this big showman and, and, and have her life be his life. And not have to make movies. I mean, my God, she'd been making movies since she was, you know, nine years old. She's about 27. And so, you know, he got her out of the contract, said, let her, make, let her finish uh, Cat on Hutch and Roof and, and be done with it. Now, come on, she's been working for you guys forever. So Mike got her out of it. Mike goes off to New York Elizabeth was sick in bed. She had a, like a 104 temperature or something crazy and couldn't go with Mike. It was planned that she would. He was being honored by the Friars Club. The plane takes off. He's supposed to call Elizabeth, um, I think it from, from Oklahoma. The plane crashed and everyone was killed. Ms. Taylor was in a state of collapse following the death of her husband in a plane crash. Mike Todd had made a million dollars in real estate before he was 20, lost it, made another million again and again. Less than 10 years ago, he was bankrupt. At his death, he was 49 years old, the producer of Around the World in 80 Days, happily married to one of Hollywood's reigning beauties. On the crest of the wave again. Elizabeth was told she completely freaked out, of course. She ran around the house screaming. I mean, it was, she just, they were so in love. It was this whirlwind 
romance on an epic scale. And she has a six-month-old infant, two sons, and she's making cat on a hot tin roof. And she has to get through this somehow. She's in her 20s. It was horrible for everyone. I mean, the world consoled her. His greatest legacy to me was the gift of love. Knowing not only how to give, but how to receive with love. The consolation didn't last long. With the tragedy of Mike's death came a brewing scandal that threatened to inflict even more wounds. Mike Taub was best friends with Eddie Fisher. Elizabeth had known Debbie Reynolds from their days at MGM. They, went to, they were in the Little Red Schoolhouse together. So there is a lot of, um, a lot of connection and love of these two couples who were basically inseparable and they did everything together. At Mike's funeral, there were so many paparazzis. It was in Chicago where Mike was born. So many paparazzi, so many fans. They were ripping at Elizabeth. It was an incredible scene. It's so heartless. And she got through that and came home and Eddie Fisher, who was Mike's best friend, was also basically inconsolable. So Debbie said, Eddie, I think you need to go and be with Elizabeth. So Eddie and Elizabeth, you know, they connected on, on the Mike level. They're both grieving so hard. They're shocked. And through that, they started to feel a connection with each other. And that connection grew and they felt that they were in love and they felt that they needed each other. It was clearly over Mike, but Debbie and Eddie had a, their relationship wasn't, it was strained. And they had talked about divorce and they stayed together basically because they were America's sweetheart couple. But. Eddie started to spend more time with Elizabeth and eventually it came out that they were having an affair. The world reacted. They hated Elizabeth. There was no compassion. Debbie played into this whole scenario. She played the victim. She answered the front door holding both of her children with diaper pins clipped to her. Elizabeth is painted as this incredible femme fatale. She broke up their marriage. And people really didn't blame Eddie, they blamed Elizabeth. So there's a gossip columnist who had a lot of power in Hollywood. She actually helped Elizabeth. Sarah, Elizabeth's mother, befriended her. And she did a lot through her column to support Elizabeth in her career. She talked to Elizabeth. She told her what she was doing was wrong. She was extremely judgmental. Elizabeth was very, very vulnerable. Elizabeth said a whole bunch of stuff to Hedda. And one of those things was, Mike's dead. I'm alive. What do you expect me to do? What do you expect me to do? Sleep alone? Hedda ripped her apart in the press. The world turned on her. Eddie Fisher is playing in Vegas at the Tropicana. Elizabeth being the supportive wife that she always was, sat in the audience and was there to support him. They picketed Elizabeth. There were literally protesters with signs saying things like, Liz, go home. Send Liz home. It wouldn't be the last time in her life that she was protested. Elizabeth would not have survived this if she listened to the press. 
This was a defining moment for her, a time to grow and to learn how to protect her heart. And she made a decision. She was responsible to the public in terms of the work that she did as an actress. She was responsible to her family and she was responsible to, you know, to all anyone close to her. Those are the people she was responsible to. These things kept happening and her life was more dramatic than any film role she ever played. It overshadowed everything else for Elizabeth. So what Elizabeth had to do was be true to her authentic self. Her motto was to thine own self be true. And she had to really hang on to that. And, and, and she did it. I, I, you know, in my years with her, I, you know, she looked forward. She didn't look around her. She didn't take it in. No, she, she, she looked forward. She didn't look behind her or around her and she took it in, and she used her heart as her compass. Love, a scandal, tragedy, doesn't matter. The show must go on. Mike dies in a plane crash. She has Butterfield 8, and she's pissed that she has to make that movie playing a prostitute, basically. High-end, but a prostitute. Of course, she won an Oscar, but suddenly Fox is like, banging at her door, and they want her to play Cleopatra. Producer Walter Wanger had been trying to get Cleopatra made for years, but who could play the Queen of Queens? All the big actresses of the time were considered, but Wanger and the studio knew there was only one woman who could pull it off. It had to be Elizabeth. I mean, she'd been through so much. Her husband died, this man that was like, the love of her life. And they were only married for, I think, 13 months, and he dies in a plane crash. She has to go through all that grieving, which clearly she still is at this point. She has three children, but a newborn, Liza, Mike's, her, you know, Elizabeth and Mike's daughter. And, uh, and she almost died in chi that childbirth. And then, of course, her getting together with Eddie. The whole world hates her at this point. Mike was a gambler. And he had gambling debts, which Elizabeth was then responsible for. She did have to face, for the first time in her life, debtors at her door. As Mike Todd's wife, she was responsible for the debt. That was something Elizabeth had never had to face before. You know, it's not that she was rich at all. She was a contract player at a movie, at a movie studio, and so while she got a good salary, she wasn't making the kind of money that she made later that actors make today, the kind of deals that you can get back end. Cleopatra was set to be the biggest movie ever in the golden era of film when movies reigned supreme. This was decades before the cable TV boom, Netflix, or YouTube content. In today's dollars, Cleopatra was a $400 million film. Everything was on the line. The producer and the studio needed the queen. And they were relentless in their pursuit. Stop bothering me. Cleopatra? I think they actually tested uh, with audiences if that Marilyn or Audrey or Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth was like hands down what everybody wanted. And so, you know, they're like, oh God, what do we do now? And Elizabeth didn't want to do it. And so she kept saying no. And finally, she's in the Dorchester Hotel. I think she was in the Harlequin Suite. And she's taking a bath. I mean, I've seen that bath. It's pink marble. And Eddie is banging on the door. Now, if anyone needed a moment of peace to be in the bath, it was Elizabeth Taylor at this point. Banging on the door. Elizabeth, they're on the phone again. And she said, you know what? Fine, tell them I'll do it for a million dollars plus 10% of the absolute gross. That's really important, and a lot of people don't know that. But Elizabeth, every single time she told that story, that is what she asked for, 10% of the absolute gross. Not the net, because she knew that the, with net, you never see a dollar. It's all hidden. She had them by the balls. She may have told the story in a more humble way that she's 
only offer that outrageous number to get them to go away, but believe me, Elizabeth knew what she was doing. Elizabeth was already a great influencer, whether she realized it yet or not, whether she intended to be or not. The men with the purse strings knew that she had enough power to carry the biggest movie ever made and make them a profit on their massive investment. Why? Because she could deliver the audience. She could build the press. She was Cleopatra. But she wouldn't have been in this position if it weren't for the love of her life who influenced her. Elizabeth was a great student. She learned from Mike Todd, and she'd grown up in the industry. She knew exactly what to ask for and how ludicrous it would be to get it. Here's what absolute gross means. It means profit off the top. Nothing is subtracted from the box office take before Elizabeth gets her cut. So at 10%, if the movie makes 100 million, she gets 10. The only accounting she needs are the box office receipts. The million is important as, as her breaking away from the studio system and suddenly getting this enormous payday as a woman. Money. Elizabeth had figured out the money in a way no actor had before. She was the first to break the million dollar threshold. She would, from the success of this one deal, open up her own production company and own her films. And finally free from the studio system, she was the first and possibly the only with the instinct and the righteous audacity to ask for gross on the back end. It was a boss move. Free from the studio system, Elizabeth started making her moves, taking control, building what would become an empire. In the episodes to come, we chart Elizabeth's life as an independent woman, rising business mogul, philanthropist, activist, and matriarch. We'll watch how she learned to harness the press and use them to build a life and future for herself and others. The spotlight from here on only gets brighter. All eyes were on Elizabeth. And she had no delusions about the nature of the beast with whom she was dancing. On the next episode of Elizabeth I. Well, he was a, a gambler and left her with, you know, some debt. I had to assume the role of husband, wife, mother, father, uh, breadwinner. And I just wanted to be taken care of. I missed Mike so much. The producers want Elizabeth. Everyone wants Elizabeth. They had tested for other actresses. With Cleopatra, of course, I had this, as most of the public does, this legend in my mind of the million dollars. And the world hated her. They were still against her. It was during her marriage to Eddie Fisher. And she dialed the operator and said, is there any doctor registered in the hotel? And he said, no, baby. You have to go back. I'll be here waiting for you. But you have something to do, something very important, and you can't come over yet. Elizabeth I is produced by Imperative Entertainment in association with House of Taylor and Kitty Purry Productions. Executive producers are Katy Perry, Jason Hoke, and Stephanie Koff. Elizabeth I is narrated by Katy Perry, produced by Jason Hoke, and written by Stephanie Koff. Sound engineering and audio editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. House of Taylor trustees are Quinn Tivy, Tim Mendelson, and Barbara Berkowitz. And its brand strategy consultant is Aaron Dawkins. Marshall Eskowitz and Kerry Schwartz of Sunset Boulevard serve as producing partners and represent House of Taylor for Elizabeth Taylor licensing and content opportunities. Joshua Klebe wrote and composed the original score. Additional music provided by Reese Tivy. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to support the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, 
visit elizabethtaylorazefoundation.org. And if you'd like to go deeper into the world of Elizabeth Taylor, keep an eye out for the first authorized biography about her life. Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon by number one New York Times bestselling author Kate Anderson Brower will be out on December 6. For more behind-the-scenes content, follow at Elizabeth Taylor, at Katy Perry, and at Imperative Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Love the series? Don't forget to tell your friends and leave a review. Thanks for listening.